You think fidget spinners are going to make a comeback? I just found my fidget spinner. Remember those? Did you have one? I don't, I don't think I know what a fidget spinner is. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Should I? Um, no. I mean, you know, uh, it was not that long ago. It was just sort of like last year, maybe two years ago. <laughs> Usually when I don't know something, it's from the 80s. Yeah. Because my parents sheltered me. Yeah, no, this was a big thing. Um yeah, they're just like little toys. You could get them for 99 cents at the grocery store. Uh, it's just a thing. What percentage of Americans under 50 know what a fidget spinner is? Uh, I'm going to like 99.9%. <laughs> That's obviously not true. I'm going to Google it and see if I can even, if it even triggers anything. Fidget. Oh, Yeah. Google knows what it is. That's for sure. Everyone knows what it is. <laughs> Here's a titanium or trianium fidget spinner. Can you What's go onto Amazon and look for fidget spinners and and organize by price <laughs> and, and and find this? This one is looking like a like it's in an Avengers movie or something. It's intense. What is it's fit 14, 14 bucks. I want to see the it's most expensive fidget spinner that they have. <laughs> Sort by price, high to low. There's a $600 fidget spinner. <laughs> it's sterling silver. It has an ebony wood inner inlay. Just beautiful. It's a beautiful piece. Do you see the Mech Force Delta Core? That's 150. No. Where is that? The world is just collapsing in front of me. Yeah. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 540, mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome. Welcome back. Thanks for being here, everybody. As usual, yeah. it's really great that you're tuning in. Yeah, 15. Uh, is that a milestone? In it, I guess. Episode 15, I think, is a milestone. Every five. I mean, that's just how our brains work right uh yeah five is i've been looking forward to this one you have oh, okay no i haven't <laughs> well, <laughs> you ready to do billionaires in the news <laughs> give me a second let me get my head in the game okay i'm ready all right billionaires in the news uh, so this week, uh, there's a couple things, um, I wanted to talk about, did you get a chance to look at that article on, uh, Steve Schwartzman, Blackstone and the Amazon fires that are happening right now? Amazon, the jungle, not the company. Not really. I looked at some other things about it before you sent me that text message, but I didn't really follow up on the text that you sent. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very bad. Um, there's a, I guess the first I heard of it, there was an Intercept article this week uh, that pointed out that Steve Schwartzman, we've talked about him before, uh, CEO of Blackstone. It's uh, very large. They own a ton of stuff, including uh, two Brazilian companies that 
are uh, kind of responsible for the fires that are taking place in the Amazon right now. Uh, you've so so. Can we explain? why they are responsible yeah you know it's a little bit convoluted but um like i guess i guess first like um there are forest fires all of the time and in fact you probably heard about like russia you know being on fire uh, <clears throat> uh earlier this summer like this is a this is of a different magnitude than uh, a lot of other fires uh, that in the Amazon right now, because just in terms of the scale of it or the potential environmental consequences of I it, I think the latter. Uh, so, like, it's not as big as the Russian fire uh, was, but mm. it, it. But the Amazon, uh, according to to several sources that I saw, provides twenty percent of the world's oxygen. Like it's the biggest carbon capture mechanism that we have. Jesus Christ. And uh, and there's some worry that like there's this, I guess, kind of feedback effect or this uh, uh, chain reaction effect that happens that if some crucial portion of the fire uh, or sorry, some crucial portion of the uh, jungle dies, then it will just kind of cascade and the dying off will cascade and the whole thing will sort of collapse. So it's very, very scary. And, and like I... That is insanely scary. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a fifth of the world's oxygen, right? Um, uh, no longer being produced. It's right? like it's just one giant organism yeah. that is now and experiencing trauma. Yeah. And uh, the whole world depends on it for survival. Yeah. I mean, the whole world depends on not just in terms of like the amount of oxygen that it puts out, but also like climate patterns globally would change in really unpredictable ways if it all of a sudden wasn't there. So how did these fires start? Yeah. Well, so um, I'm not sure if there is concrete proof, but it's pretty obvious if you kind of put two and two together uh, that these fires are being purposefully set by large agribusiness. Uh, so Jair Bolsonaro, who is the current president of Brazil, uh, has been called the most dangerous political figure uh, for you know the future of humanity because of this thing. Uh, he's basically embarked on a program of deregulation to kind of give agribusiness free reign to do whatever they want to the Amazon rainforest. And what they're doing, they're cutting down a lot of the forest and, uh, and farmers have begun setting fires to clear land to uh, to grow crops on. And I think what's happened is uh, those fires have gotten out of control and gone beyond where the farmers intended. Not that it's good that they were, you know, even doing controlled burns. Is the, or, is the, is the term Sweden agriculture? Is this the same thing? I don't know. Sweden. I don't know that word. S W I D D E N. Sweden. Um, An area of land cleared for cultivation by slashing and burdening vegetation. Yeah. So I think they're doing some Sweden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for introducing that term. Basically, there are these large <laughs> agribusiness firms that the, the, the reins have been loosened on by Bolsonaro. And you might ask, like, well, okay, uh, but. Um, like why, uh, why now, why are they clearing this land? Why do they need more land? And you may have also noticed that, uh, you've heard about soybean farmers in the United States in the news who are suffering, uh, right now because they're unable to sell soybeans to China, uh, because is this because of the tariffs? Yeah. Because of the tariffs that, uh, Trump imposed on China, they're, you know, not no longer buying soybeans. Uh, and so Brazil is this emerging market for Chinese soybean production. And so like to, you know, it's this, it's just this like absurd 
thing where uh, we're destroying our oxygen supply to grow a food supply, right? Like, so, you know, at the end of it, we might have more food, but we'll have less oxygen to breathe. And I mean, the weirdest part of it is that Schwartzman is a financial advisor, an economic advisor to Trump. So, like, Trump imposes these tariffs, which causes China to stop buying soybeans, which causes Schwartzman's Brazilian agribusiness companies to start burning down the Amazon rainforest to grow more soybeans to sell to China to get around like, to, who are buying them because of the tariffs that Trump imposed. Like, I mean, it's just like there's like three people involved in this who, are, who, you know, are pulling the levers, uh, the financial levers that are uh, you know, making it happen and could potentially stop. That's it. pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah, three people are essentially possibly responsible for doing away with a fifth of our oxygen. Right. Supply. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> Everything else is downstream from like Trump, Schwartzman, and Bolsonaro. Right. Like that. That uh, if those three people made different decisions, then 20 percent of the world's oxygen would not currently be at risk. That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. Yeah, not in a good way. <laughs> uh, next, I wanted to talk about the the joyous event that happened recently, uh, which uh, we recorded like the la our last episode, like the day before this happened. Uh, and I wish we would have gotten a chance to talk about it when it was still fresh. Uh, but David Koch is dead. So did you write up a little in memoriam? <laughs> I, I you know, did, like did David Koch <laughs> has has lived on this planet for almost 80 years and done a lot of very, very horrible things. Yeah. Um, he's given money to horrible people. Yeah. He's promoted horrible agendas. He's dedicated his life to awfulness. And now he's dead. Yeah. Is that, a, is that fair? Uh, that's fair. Um, yeah. And I thought we could maybe get into some more specifics. Um, but what, what we thought we would do, we've been thinking about this for a little while, which is introducing a kind of rating scale uh, for the billionaires that we cover. Our idea was to uh, take this opportunity to call that scale the David Koch Memorial Asset Liquidation Index. We're going to rank billionaires on a scale of one to ten according to how urgent it is that their amassed fortunes be immediately liquidated and redistributed as a form of reparations to everyone they've harmed. And so we're going to do this every show. Yeah. And we're calling it the David Koch Memorial Asset Liquidation Index because he is a perfect 10. He is as bad as it gets. It would have been awesome to be able to have liquidated his assets. Yeah. Uh, the liquidation of David Koch's assets would have been a major gain for humanity. Uh, this would have had to happen uh, a couple of decades ago because uh, of the specific things that they're involved in, namely uh, climate change denial. David Koch and his brother Charles are uh, maybe more responsible than anyone else. Uh, so, how, so how does this index work? Like one means like we really don't mind at all if these people keep their money. And 10 is if we don't liquidate all of their assets immediately, we might all die. Yes. Yeah. That's what I would. That's what I would say. And so like, uh, you know, Ira Renner, right, who is not quite as politically engaged as, say, uh, the Koch brothers, but does uh, murder children on a regular basis uh, with his businesses. Uh, like, I'm, I don't know, like that, that's something we can talk about, right? Is he a perfect 10? Is he as bad? You know, uh, maybe he's a nine. No, no, he, he's not, he's not a perfect yeah, 10. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to reach. I think we have to set the bar high. Yeah. It's hard to reach the David Koch level of evil. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think that, you know, there are, there are books and documentaries. There's all kinds of information out there about why the Koch brothers are bad. For us, I think probably uh, the, the climate change denial uh, and uh, maybe opposition to single payer health care. I mean, they did maybe more than anybody else to uh, prohibit the implementation of like a really sane health care system uh, during the Obama administration. That shit just makes me so angry, man. It, well, it's directly uh, harming uh, human beings, right? Like it's, uh, yeah. it's <laughs> you know, they're poisoning the air and the water and then preventing people from getting the health care that they need to fix the problems that they're causing. <laughs> All right, Chad, who are you covering today? Uh, I'm going to cover Bharat Desai and Nirja Sethi. Okay. Uh, they are a married couple. They started the company Sintel together uh, in 1980. What's Sintel? Is it computers? It sounds like computers. It is uh, technology services, uh, which is a, a very vague kind of umbrella term for a lot of different things that I'll talk about in a second. Okay. Um, but they don't own it anymore. They sold it in 2017 for $3.4 billion to the French company Atos, A-T-O-S. Desai started uh, started out working at Tata Consultancy Services, um, which I hadn't heard of before, but it is the world's largest information technology service provider. How do you, what, how do you uh, spell Tata? T-A-T-A. Tata. Uh, ta -ta. You know, like, <laughs> just like goodbye. Uh, um, okay. Also, also the largest company in India. Just a, a quick note on on outsourcing, and, and because I I, I want to talk, we're going to obviously talk about outsourcing more in the future. And frankly, Sintel is not a very big company uh, as outsourcing companies go. Um, and so I think there will be more opportunity and more information uh, in the future uh, when we talk about it. But quick note on on what outsourcing is and what Sintel does. I think. Americans tend to think of uh, Indian companies that do IT consulting or outsourcing as like call centers and customer support and that sort of thing. But they they actually contract out any non-core business function that a corporation might need to do. So like sometimes it is call centers, right? But it's it's also manufacturing, right? Like we've heard of outsourcing manufacturing. Also administrative work like uh, payroll and claims processing and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and a huge area is software development. And, and, and Sintel did a lot of that. Um, so like if you are a company... Like uh, a proofreading company. I used to work for a proofreading company and they, and they had this special software. I think they contracted out with a Russian agency, but um, but it's like, a, you know, you need a you need a special software program for something very specific that your business does. And, and there isn't an off the shelf program uh, that you can buy that handles that sort of thing. Uh, you you contract with a, a technology services provider to uh, create that that program. And a lot of this is done offshore now because it's cheaper. Um, hmm. And a lot of it takes place in, in India. So that's sort of what Sintel did. Uh, uh, it wasn't very large compared to other, even other Indian businesses that did the same thing. Um, like Tata Consultancy is orders of magnitude larger. It's way, way bigger. Um, 
Um, Atos is also extremely large. I, I did have one like quick kind of sidebar about Atos. Uh, and and uh, this is mainly for our friend Kyle Stein, uh, who is a scholar of the history of computing, uh, who uh, uh, is likely listening right now. Uh, Atos is uh, connected to uh, Frederick Rosing Boole. Uh, he invented a punch card tabulating device called the Boole machine uh, in the 1920s. Um you know what punched cards are, right? They're yeah, these the little sort early of... proto computers. Yeah, so they they've been around since uh, the 1890 census. Uh, uh, the 1880 census took eight years to process by hand, so it was almost time for the next census before they were finished counting the previous. Oh census, God! Right, uh, and so they kind of needed uh, uh, some sort of automated processing system, and they came up with uh, punch card devices, uh, uh, which could tabulate very very quickly. Uh, the only problem was that IBM, it was called CTR then, uh, they had a complete monopoly on the technology. And so this, uh, uh, the bull machine was the first punched card system that broke the monopoly. Okay. Um, and, and so, it, it, you know, it's sort of like the GoBots to IBM's Transformer or uh, the Hydrox to the Oreo. Um, uh, it, uh, Not as good. A uh, bull... It, well, I mean, actually, you know, from what I read, um, it did do more stuff. Apparently, the bull machine broke down a lot. And so uh, they were not very reliable, but they had more capabilities. Hmm. Um, uh, bull went on to form the company Group Bull, which still today is a global force in the computing business. So like uh, what was interesting to me about that is like computing was a global industry from the beginning. It's born out of like... Uh, dealing with large populations that are hard to count, uh, with globalization, uh, with international business, uh, uh, you know, like um, it's interesting. Think- it's it's interesting to think about that. There's a direct relationship between possibly the the population of the Earth and need for computing power. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, Atos bought, bought bull machines, uh, or bull, group bull, uh, uh, in 2014, uh, in 2015, they bought Xerox's entire technology services division. And then they bought Sintel the following year. So that this French company Atos is this gigantic conglomerate. Um, uh, you know, Sintel, not that interesting on its own. Basically they just copied the business plan of Tata. The guy Desai worked there at Tata and then just tried to copy the company, uh, so there's there's not really any other information on those billionaires uh, that is really worth covering today, except for one fairly unique fact, their address. Desai and Sethi live in Fisher Island, Florida. Have you heard of Fisher Island? No. Well, it is the wealthiest zip code in the United States. <clears throat> it's a, a very tiny island uh, right off of Miami Beach. The total area is 0.3 square miles, and it has a population of 467 people. What? Uh, I think it's actually a little bit larger now um, because- uh, How do that many uh, people well, get, live there? Is it just a couple? I don't understand. Condos. Okay. Uh, almost but all of why the Why is it a wealthy- are, Why would you want that? If- Oh, I'm really glad that you asked because that's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> okay. uh, um, uh, 
So uh, just really briefly, though, the, the island has a history of wealth. A Vanderbilt traded a yacht for ownership of the island in the 1930s. Okay. In the 60s, uh, a guy named B.B. Rebozo, uh, a Florida banker and confidant to Richard Nixon, went in on a real estate deal with Nixon uh, that included ownership of the island. Uh, Nixon uh, famously had a, a home known as the Key Biscayne White House. Uh, uh, Key Biscayne is next door to uh, uh, Fisher Island. Okay. Um, and uh, in the 80s, uh, commercial development, like it was a single family island for a long time. In the 80s, commercial development began. Um, aside from Desai and Sethi, uh, people who have homes there include Andre Agassi hmm. and Boris Becker. <laughs> Um, a bunch of NHL players for some reason. I came across at least three ex-NHL players. Uh, Oprah has a home there. Uh, the model Carolina Kirkova. Uh, a bunch of like minor TV and media people. Um, so why are they all there? What's what's going on there? Okay. Well, mostly the population of the island is bankers and other finance people. Uh, I tried to do some like citizen journalism and I looked through the property records and like kind of Googled the last name of anybody who was on property records there. And I didn't really come across anything interesting. Like one interesting thing of note is like anytime there's a Russian name, if you Google it, there are no results. Um, but hmm. you know, there are some like funny Miami nightlife websites that have pictures of these people. Um, but there's a lot of finance people and bankers there uh, uh, because uh, there's a uh, and there's, there's concurrently a huge surge in property values. Uh, they're already very high, but there's a, there's a huge surge in them uh, and, and a huge surge in frequency of home sales in the island because Florida does not have a state income tax. Uh, what happened is that the Republican tax bill from 2017 eliminated uh, the ability of wealthy people to deduct the entirety of their property tax uh, from their taxes. And, and after the bill, you can only deduct up to $10,000. And that actually seems like a good thing. Uh, like, so you can't take a huge tax break just because you bought a really expensive house. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, however, <laughs> the change in law has led rich people to just start moving elsewhere where their tax burden will be reduced, uh, places like Florida. Um, so a, a recent Business Insider article calls them tax refugees, uh, which is hmm. like a, a kind of offensive and, and messed up. But they're moving to like new places where they can reduce their tax burden. So I can't take this property tax deduction anymore. Uh, so I'm going to move to a place where I don't have to pay any income tax or, or, or something. Right. And so they're not moving to Miami proper. They're moving to Fisher Island. Um, uh, only 20 percent of the, the residents live there full time, like most people just kind of live there sometimes. But they can get um, the tax break even if they don't live there full time? If their primary residence is in Florida, yeah, they don't have to pay any state income tax. But this doesn't, they could, um, they could live anywhere in Florida. It doesn't have to be Fisher Island. They could. The reason that they live on Fisher Island is because it's entirely cut off from the mainland. You can't reach it by any sort of bridge or anything. I see. So you can get there by a ferry that carries your autom automobile, but you have to have permission to get off the ferry and, and enter the island. Uh, or you can get there by private yacht. They have a big yacht marina. Or you can get there by helicopter. Those are the only ways. So you are just completely, you have a just rich people buffer around you. Exactly. It, it's like a principality or something of the U.S., right? Like it's, there's no income tax. There's no state income tax. It's like a sovereign territory where like they have to pay federal taxes, but otherwise they're 
absolutely isolated from the rest of, of Florida uh, anytime they want to be. God, it's like a, a compound for wealthy people uh, where they can escape uh, the tax burdens that like other people have to pay. It's like they literally have a moat around their home. Yeah. No, it's an actual moat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to post links in the show description of these like Miami nightlife uh, photographs, uh, like websites that, that host photographs. They have uh, Agassi uh, on there. These people. Did you see Agassi? No, 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 no. They're they're mostly uh, old men who are like retired bankers uh, or, uh, you know, like rich retired doctors. And they have younger wives uh, who are, uh, I don't know if it's offensive to say, but mangled by plastic surgery, uh, <laughs> like every single one of them. It, like It's like an island of aliens. It's so weird to, to see. How far um, away is this from Mar-a-Lago? That's what I was going to bring up. I, you know, like we're not allowed in there, but I'm not sure if we'd want to go because that area is uh, famous for being where some of the worst people in the world like to hang out. Um, you know, uh, famously, uh, very recently, uh, uh, not only Trump, but uh, Epstein um, uh, and and really, you know, sort of elderly oligarchs from around the world. Right. Like, I think we should set up a GoFundMe page to fund a helicopter ride. For me and you from Miami to Fisher <laughs> Island so we yeah. could go do some well, field work for a special yeah, I mean, episode. My thought was, I'm sure not not all of these people, right, are, are billionaires. Some of them are just very rich people. And I think that some of them Airbnb out their condos uh, on the, uh, whenever they're not staying there or, <laughs> or find some way to rent them. So I, I, I don't know. We, we might be able to like find our way in there somehow. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like for us to be walking around there? It wouldn't be fun. Like almost like there's almost no one on the island under 60 years old. Right. Like it is. It skews very old. But I mean, I feel like it would be similar to like me and you walking around like rural Cambodia. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we would just stick out. Yeah. 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 What are these guys doing? Yeah. I mean, like, It'll no, be fun. It'll be fun. I could not even begin to pretend to belong. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, that actually kind of brings me, that's a good segue into my next point because like, okay, so I, I've developed a theory and it's a, it's a little bit uh, wacky, but um, uh, I want to preface it by, I, I came across a document when I was uh, researching uh, that was really funny to me uh, because of the way that they advertise the Fisher Island Club Hotel. I, I came across a brochure of uh, the amenities and, and things that they offer. And in earlier episodes, I remember talking a few times about what we called the aggressively middle brow tastes of a lot of the super wealthy. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Um, like we, we were sort of like, well, if we had, you know, a billion dollars, we would try to have more interesting hobbies and interests than, than these people, you know, it's like the same five things. Oh, it's like golf, steak, wine, yachts. As I, especially as I was looking at the like Miami nightlife, uh, pictures of people from Fisher Island hanging out. Everything that I ever see, I realize, just looks like an ad for a sandals resort. Like it, it all like just looks 
nondescript. And so I thought I would I thought I'd read a couple of uh, items from the uh, accommodations sheet of, of the Fisher Island Club Hotel. Here are some of the things that guest rooms feature: Wi-Fi, high-speed internet service. I'm very glad that they explain what Wi-Fi. Like that's how you know that the clientele is actually very old because they explain <laughs> what Wi-Fi means. Goose down, non-allergenic pillows. That's nice. And then the next one is fine European bath amenities. Just like the language, fine European. It's just like, like that's how like uh, my, my grandmother would see that in a Sears catalog in like 1964 and be like, ooh, and be like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, right. Like such a weird thing. Uh, they have a private beach with butler service. Uh, like, can you imagine being served by a butler as you lounge on a you beach? You know, I had a, I, in graduate school, me and Dan Faltasek had an idea for a reality show called America's Best Butler. It was basically. I think I remember you telling it was like me about a chopped that. style competition to to see who could <laughs> buttle the best. <laughs> I think it'd still be solid. I feel like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great idea. Um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff about yachts, golf, and tennis. Like, uh, um, but like, okay, there's one sentence. It's a, and it's the description for the grocery store on the island that really got me. It, like. Again, it's just such strange language to me, right? Uh, so, quote, uh, the island market offers a variety of freshly brewed, great tasting coffees, delights from the deli, organic fruits and vegetables, a bakery, caviar, a fabulous selection of red and white wine, and an assortment of the most wanted and unique grocery items. <laughs> yeah, that's like the fine European whatever. It's just vague. Yeah. Vague fancy. <laughs> right. Like, oh, we have we have caviar. We know what we know what you rich people like. Caviar. Um like it's like I it's just such a strange like like someone is imagining what a rich person likes and being like, we have caviar and fine wine. But like that is what they actually like. Right? But it's like <laughs> lowest so, common denominator for the highest price point. You know? Yeah. It's like I think it's that's, not think, it's not like pandering to people who have have like true, whatever, it's sort of a bullshit phrase, but like truly refined sensibility. You know, people who know the difference between this and that. They're not actually trying to speak to those people. They're just trying to speak in general to people who want rich things. Yeah, which I think is most most of the people on the island. And one last item, and this is just because I think it's funny. They have an observatory with a fully functioning observatory for a complete view of the planets, and deep sky objects such as galaxies, nebulas, and double stars. A deep sky objects such as <laughs> galaxy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like someone Googled, like, what is an observatory? And they're like, you can look at things in the deep sky. Anyway, okay. So, so basically, right, like, so the idea, the reason I read that is, like, there's just nothing unique or, like, it's exactly what you would expect uh, in this very kind of pedestrian like way, right? Like a, a, a thing like that to say. Um, and this is where I'm going into uh, my, my pretty hot take uh, that connects to Jeffrey Epstein. And, and here's how it connects. So Epstein was widely known to have horrible taste. Uh, he wore sweatpants all the time. 
He wore these like very cheesy monogrammed shirts, uh, like discounting the the paintings that uh, that he, and art that he had that was like uh, of a you know of a sexually perverse nature of like young girls and stuff like that. The rest of the stuff that he had was like really boring. He was really invested in figurative painting, right? Like he was one of those guys who like looks at modern art and he's like, oh, I could do that. Right. And and so he he really liked uh, realist, you know, figurative, you know, uh, uh, painting. Landscape um, paintings. But he was a and, big he, and he funded art schools that thought that. Uh, I think he liked human bodies. Um, mm. In a recent court testimony from his accusers, one of them made it a point to say he had such bad taste. Um, and then, of course, there's Donald Trump, right? Uh, the undisputed king of bad taste. Uh, um, and like, it's very like it's, it's this it's it's a assertive bad taste, right? Like they're performing, as we said before, this image of what they think a, a rich person is supposed to like, like wine, steak, golf. Uh, gold, right? Um, and like any <laughs> yeah. sort of ostentatious display. All right. Well, so my take, what if the bad taste is itself a misdirection strategy? What if they have this public facing set of interests that that like are so repulsive, like so boring that no one's going to look into them any further, right? Like caviar, uh, oh, and uh, $900 for an ounce of uh, fish eggs. Like, um, you know, that's not for me. Polo? Um, what is what is polo? Do you know? Tell me one rule of polo. Right. I don't know. But so what is your point? Yeah. Is, I'm getting, I'm getting like uh, golf. Uh, it costs a lot of money to play golf. You know, like golf is, a, you know, in some ways a middle class hobby. But like, um, you know, uh, um, also very boring, though. So. What if billionaires are tricking us into thinking that they like all of these uh, very gross and very boring things so we don't look any further into their interests uh, and discover that what they're actually interested in are uh, just different types of sexual criminality? Dude, <laughs> I can't. So, okay. okay, stick with me. Stick with me. <laughs> oh, my God. What I'm arguing, what I'm, I'm stealing the logic of Pizzagate, right? Like uh, the thing about <laughs> Pizzagate was- Why would you was, do that? because <laughs> well, well i mean first you know pizzagate is real it just like they they just got some of the details wrong right like the the problem is like nobody's ever going to use pizza as a code or or have a sex ring at a pizza place because pizza is objectively good and interesting and people will pay attention to pizza but like if if i was a billionaire and i wanted to use some sort of uh food code for sex crimes i would do like caviar right or wine right like uh Dude. like you know maybe caviar is like child trafficking you know and wine is like slave trading or something <laughs> right like that that you know, like use things that don't draw attention, right? Like that, uh, that, uh, you know, so like, um, uh, that's my theory. My theory oh, well, is that I, like, basically Pizzagate is real. They're all sex criminals. And, um, uh, the, the reason that they're interested in these things that are boring <laughs> or gross is because those are the codes that they use to communicate, uh, their crimes. I mean, I don't even know how to talk to is you. Is that too much? Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> It's fucking way too right. much. <laughs> you know, it's maybe not it's maybe not an airtight theory, but you know, I just thought I'd throw it out there as a possibility. So so what are we gonna rate these people? Let's bust out our new Coke Asset Liquidation Index. I, you know, I think these people rate really low. Mm. They 
they started a relatively small business. It got purchased for a big chunk of money. And so like they kind of made they kind of became billionaires just from selling a business they started and then they moved to a terrible place in Florida. So I you know so I it's guess like a two. Maybe a two? I, yeah. I thought you were gonna say four. Wow. Two. I'm not sure we're ever gonna come across another two again. I think probably a three is closer to accurate. I don't okay, know. so you we know, average. Yeah. Let's average it out. Uh, well, oh, no, no, I think I think that we both uh, get to rate them. That that gives uh, that makes them a two point five. Two point. I just feel like two two is really low. <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. Well, they're a two point five. Uh, Joe, who do you have today? Okay, I have Conrad Prebis. If you remember from last <laughs> week, last episode, I think you pronounced it Prebus. It's Prebus. It's Prebus? Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. So that's the first thing to know. Mm-hmm. The second thing to know is that he's dead, which is sort of a recurring thing again (laughs) i know i mean these guys they're all so old this is what have we done 20 Uh, no when's our our list is from 2016 our list is from 2016 or 2017 2016 right no i think is it 2016 yeah i I mean i don't think it's that old you've got the you you're the list man Prebus died in 2016, so maybe this is a 20. I don't know. He died in 2016. Is our list really that outdated? Okay, I got to fix this. Yeah, Sorry it is that, that outdated. Yeah, he died three years ago. Actually, that's, over my, three that's years my bad. <laughs> that's why 10% of the billionaires that we've covered so far have been dead. <laughs> I mean, three out of 30 have been dead. You know, like, uh, yeah. I'd like to see like a histogram of billionaires' ages. Because they are characteristically old. Yeah, I bet there is a lot of. I bet billionaires die at a greater rate than the average members of the population. Really? Why do you think that? Just because they're so old. Oh like yeah, if your oh, average yeah, yeah. billionaire is like eighty-eight. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. There's a, a grip of them with, uh, that came up with like Michael Milken, and there there are so many that are exactly the same age uh, because of deregulation in the '80s, and they made a fortune, and then they invested that fortune, and then they, they became billionaires, and now they're all between like 75 and 85. Um, and they're all dying, like David Koch. Yeah, good. It's too bad. There's too many. There's so many new ones. <laughs> Yeah, well, they just give their money to the next generation of Yeah. So Conrad Prebus was, as far as these things go, a relatively visible billionaire, especially if you live in San Diego. I don't. Where he's given away a ton of money. Yeah, I don't either. I never (laughs) heard of him. But I'm guessing that several people in San Diego have heard of him. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Were you two set out to research Conrad Prebus today? The first thing that you would learn about him is that when he died, he cut his only child, Eric Prebus, completely out of his will. Hmm. And this set in motion a very intense, very public legal battle over his inheritance. 
Do you know why? Well, the backstory is kind of interesting. So, all right. Way back when, Conrad Prebis, he was like a drunk and his marriage was failing and uh, that led to a divorce. He owned a pizzeria in South Bend, Indiana, s- sort of sometime around this time. But essentially, he he <laughs> ditched right. out on his family when his son, Eric, was two years old. Okay. And when Eric was a teenager, when he was 16, he did the thing that teenagers sometimes do and, and tracked down his dad, who at this point had gotten sober and had made a ton of money in the construction business. And they apparently like patched things up and cultivated a relationship. And Eric grew up to be a physicist, a a professor and a director of a nuclear lab at UC Davis. All right. And according to Eric, he and his dad had a really healthy relationship over three decades, over three decades. They apparently got along well and would see each other every year. And everything seemed hunky-dory. And then, bam, Conrad Prebis dies and leaves Eric nothing. And I guess Eric had been under the impression that he was going to get <laughs> a, a significant check. That's interesting. So. Yeah. So Eric's contestation of the will was ultimately settled uh, for something like $15 million, but there was a lot of nastiness that ensued with Conrad's longtime partner who was fighting this thing tooth and nail. And it made a lot of headlines because it's a, you know, it's sort of a gripping story. But the so, so the moral of this story, as far as I can tell, is that Conrad Prebis was a deadbeat dad who faked liking his devoted <laughs> and successful son <laughs> before cutting him out of the will yeah. ruthlessly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe there's other versions of it, but that version seems to hold a certain amount of water. Well, do you know anything about, like, uh, Prebis's, uh, the 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 elders' politics? Or, like, is it... Is it some sort of, like, I don't want you to use my fortune for... Uh, for what I conceive as evil. That's an interesting thing to think about. Perhaps. I don't know what his attitude is about nuclear physics or what he <laughs> objections that he might have had to his son's I'm against physics. profession. That's going way out on a limb of projection. That's interesting, but I have no idea. What I do know is that to the extent that Conrad Prebis is going to be remembered at all, he will likely be be remembered very differently from the deadbeat dad that I described a moment ago. Oh, okay. And the reason for this, going back to the beginning of the segment, is that he caught the philanthropy bug late in life and started to give away an insane amount of money all over the place, but concentrated in the San Diego area. Ah, so this was a guy thinking about his legacy, Pretty hard, right? And so the son relationship has to figure into that in some way. Yeah. So maybe we can come up with some theories. But but, but, but before we do that, I wanted to offer a selection. This is probably an incomplete list, but a healthy selection of buildings 
and big rooms that are named after Conrad Prebis to give you a sense of what he was doing with his money for the last couple of decades of his life. You ready for this? I'm ready. Conrad Prebis Performing Arts Center, Conrad Prebis Theater Center, Conrad Prebis Escondido Branch of the Boys and Girls Club, Conrad Prebis Aztec Student Union at San Diego State, UC San Diego State Conrad Prebis Music Center, UC San Diego Conrad Prebis Concert Hall, UC San Diego Conrad T. Prebis Auditorium, Indiana University Conrad Prebis Amphitheater, Prebis Cancer Center at Scripps Mercy Hospital, Prebis Cardiovascular Institute. Not exactly a room or a building, but this is definitely worth mentioning. The Conrad Prebis Africa Rocks exhibit at the San Diego Zoo, which just seems to be like problematic on a multitude of levels. He also was uh, it a geology exhibit? Yeah, I guess among other things, I'm sure it was animals and stuff. It was like Africa, but they named it the Conrad Prebis Africa Rocks exhibit, which seems (laughs) (laughs) Conrad Prebis presents Africa. Uh, yeah, right. He also pr- presented Australia. There's a Conrad Prebis Australian Outback e- exhibit. So anyway, I mean, I realized that was kind of boring, but it may be useful to just like soak up all of the different brick and mortar establishments that he attached his name to, you know? Yeah. Um, really? I mean, it's all it's all concentrated in the arts and the performing arts. Was he a musician? Or yeah, a- yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he th- There's that. I mean, like we've talked about before, it's all just sort of personal enthusiasm. So m- music was a big part of his path growing up and he, you know, had health problems and the money that he's thrown at hospitals or specifically responding to his personal experiences. You know, this is- Ah, uh, wonderful. So his his own personal whims- uh, and interests, a uh, guide who receives uh, the money that right. he stole from labor. And this is a point that we've made before, and this is a fundamental problem with philanthropy. I thought today we would explore an even more specific example of that, which is the way in which philanthropy affects the economy of colleges and, and universities. And, you know, you, you would have heard if you were paying attention, I'm sure everybody's zoned out, but several of these amphitheaters and auditoriums and concert halls are associated with colleges and universities. And yeah, yeah. working at colleges and universities, as we do, I think we have a unique perspective, not a unique perspective, but a, a tight read on how these processes unfold. Yeah, for those of you who are not tuned into what's going on with higher ed, it's bad, folks. It's not good. Uh, every university, uh, except for a tiny handful, is uh, swimming in debt. Yeah. So I wanted to, as a way of exploring this and, and having a conversation, I wanted to just sort of point out a certain perversity in the pattern of building new buildings. At colleges, which for a period of many years leading up to a couple of years ago had been uh, steadily on the rise, like uh, uh, across the United States, just a sort of 
competition among colleges and universities yeah. as to who could build the next best student center or science center yeah. or what have you. And lots of colleges built new buildings, often going into considerable amount of debt to do so, rather than putting this money back into the maintenance of pre-existing buildings and residential halls and other things that needed attention badly on campus. So why, might you ask, was money allocated in this way? The answer is that from a development and fundraising perspective, it's much easier to have to, to convince rich people to build new buildings than to fix old ones. This yeah, is like absolutely. development yeah. 101. And probably many of the people listening to the podcast already know this, but some of you maybe don't think about this stuff all the time. So there it is. And so if you understand that basic principle, and you also have internalized this argument that we've been running now over the course of a few episodes, which is that philanthropy has random consequences and ultimately is not a systemic approach to making the world better. It's just a way of individuals exerting their influence in very self-interested ways, in very narrow ways. Then you begin to realize that the colleges that are benefiting from these big donations, it's it's more or less random, but the consequences of of this are not random. It sets into right. motion a a kind of competition that campuses, colleges, and universities feel like they need to engage in if they are going to continue to attract students to attend their school. Um, is this tracking? Does this make sense? What yeah, I'm I mean, absolutely. One like one example that comes to mind is that uh, uh, the University of Iowa, where where Joe and I both did our PhDs, has a Frank Gehry Building. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to stereotype Iowans. Uh, most of the student population of the University of Iowa is from Iowa or from the uh, surrounding areas. I don't want to stereotype. I, I'm going to guess that most undergraduates, most of the 30,000 or so undergraduates at the University of Iowa uh, could not recognize a Frank Gehry building. Don't give a shit about a Frank Gehry building right. uh, yeah. being uh, prominently displayed in the center of campus, right? Like, <laughs> It's ridiculous. Like, yeah. it's, it's unclear. Like, even in, even in like, the, I mean, you know, and, and maybe I'm skipping ahead, but like the that um, that's the excuse that they always give. Right. Like, oh, no, this is actually very important for recruitment. Uh, and the and, data is very sketchy on whether or not that's actually true. <laughs> you know, so, and, yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but I have been reading a little bit about it and I read a little bit more about it in preparation for the show today. And I'm not at all convinced that building new buildings on balance for schools who've been doing this over the course of the last 20 years has been effective in uh, bringing, bringing more students to campus. Maybe it's just keeping up with the Joneses and you have to do it. Otherwise, you're really going to fall off the cliff before everyone else. And I realize it's a very complex topic and a complex situation. But to, to sort of repeat my main point, 
argument point here. The data is not obviously clear that by building new buildings, you will bring more students into your institution. And, you know, there are lots of costs associated with building these new buildings. So sure, you've got to get the money to build it. These are things that cost tens of millions of dollars. If you don't do sufficient fundraising, you're going to borrow the money and then you're going to have really, really hefty interest payments to pay for decades to come, which can be absolutely debilitating to your annual budgets. Beyond that, here's a really interesting statistic that um, I found that was sort of eye-opening. Roughly two-thirds of the lifetime costs of a, a new building accrues after it opens mm. in the form of operations, maintenance, utilities, and finally demolition. What I just said was actually a direct quote from a, a Chronicle of Higher Education report that came out last year. But, you know, you get all the money together to build the building. Maybe you're paying interest on the money that you borrowed. And then almost as much is going to be required to just deal with that building over the course of its life. And obviously buildings serve a purpose and th they, they function and make the community uh, a, a more desirable place to be in, in all sorts of ways. But colleges and universities are also notoriously bad and dumb about space management. So they'll build new spaces and then have all of these old spaces that are more empty than they should be and still require heating and maintenance. And all of this just is a drag on the financial resources at a time where a lot of these colleges don't have any spare spare resources at all. Right. And and why does this matter? Right. Like a. Uh, uh... Why does it matter that resources are being allocated to uh, campus infrastructure, right, and not um, and not other things? It's because, as people may or may not be aware, what's happening at, at campuses across the United States is that the hiring practices uh, over the course of the last twenty years or so have changed radically uh, on most campuses of the United States. Uh, today, uh, something like eighty percent of uh, faculty at uh, universities across the U.S. are not tenure-track faculty, which mm. means that they are, uh, the, that 80% of the people who teach at universities are on year-to-year -year contracts, um, many of them working part-time, uh, many of them not getting benefits or getting meager benefits. Uh, not only that, but even uh, uh, tenure track uh, hires uh, often in in many states make less. Uh, this is a this is a stereotype that that people have that uh, if you you know like if you're a professor you make a lot of money. Uh, in in many states make less than than public school teachers. Yeah, and I but I don't want to be perceived as making an argument for you know me getting paid more. You know that the, that's certainly you should not, be paid more. Well. Everybody should be paid more. You know That's what I'm right. saying? Like, I mean, I think the thing to realize is that in order to survive, the colleges that are doing well, I mean, the, you know, there's the super fancy colleges with the huge endowments that are always going to have high demand and, and kids will always go there and they can sort of charge whatever they want. But for everyone else, in order to, to, to survive, 
you're either exploiting adjuncts or you're getting some rich person to support your college in a major way. Otherwise, the the the, the or rich people, the balance sheet doesn't work otherwise. It, right. You can't make the finances of higher education work without one or both of those things happening at your school. And so this obviously opens the door for rich people to come in and exert influence on higher education in sometimes insidious ways. And so the most famous example of this that's been covered in the media widely over the last few years, and I thought I would mention it given the fact that we're launching our new uh, Coke Coke. (laughs) index this episode, are the Koch brothers. And the Koch brothers have given so much money to so many different institutions across so many years that there's actually been a nationwide movement to uncoke my campus for <laughs> students who've realized that all of these dollars are getting funneled into their institutions in different ways. And it's scary when you realize how much money they're giving and where their money is going and what they're trying to accomplish by supporting certain sorts of programs and certain kinds of colleges and universities. But I thought I would cite some data from the list of donations that they have made. This list I have is from from 2016. The list is long. There are many dozens of schools, more than 240 colleges and universities are on this list. Wow. In my home state of North Carolina, there's several different schools, at least four, that are receiving fat chunks of money from, uh, I think this is the Charles Koch Foundation that year. Western Carolina University got uh, $411,000. Wake Forest got $315,000. UNC Chapel Hill which you might think is a liberal kind of environment, took $263,000. Duke took $185,000. Purdue took a million dollars. Texas Tech took $3 million. And then, you know, a long list of schools take much less than that. But included in that list are schools like Princeton, Brown, Stanford, Wellesley, Kenyon, UPenn, U Madison, where I live, took uh, $692,000 from the Koch brothers, you know, Um, and they're, they are very intentionally trying to manipulate the intellectual environment in, in ways that are favorable to their business practices. And ultimately they, they, they actually make a lot of these schools that are receiving money sign agreements as to the kinds of programs that they're going to institute and the direction of these programs. And these agreements essentially make it uh, against the rules to critique capitalism, (laughs) you know, which is obviously one of the things that colleges and universities do well. It's one of the only places in our society that takes those questions on forcefully and engages rigorously pr- promoting this kind of thinking. And they they know that. And so they're just going straight for the heart of it. I, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, uh, and I mean, if anything, you're underselling like the the amount that they're 
the amounts that they're giving to universities. Like, I mean, I'm just, as you're talking, Googling it, they gave 10 million to the University of Utah, uh, University yeah. of Minnesota just accepted a, or sorry, I'm sorry, uh, St. Saint Cloud State in, in Minnesota. Well, uh, I forgot, I forgot to mention, you know who the biggest taker is? No. You could probably guess. Uh, what is it? Idaho? University of Idaho? Is that where they live? George Mason. Oh, George Mason. That was the controversy. $19 million. Right. That was the controversy that that they had veto power over who got hired in particular programs at George Mason. And it was a huge controversy, right? Like, um, and uh, apparently at the University of South Florida, uh, no, sorry, Florida State. Uh, that same sort of thing is happening. Uh, Florida State takes a lot of money from the Koch brothers and they allow a donor approved board uh, to veto any hiring decision. That's crazy. And it's really, really, it's deeply troubling. But so, okay. So I came across an article that I rarely do this on the show, (laughs) but I think I'd like to read this article in its entirety. (laughs) It's very short. But I think it's worth it. All right. I'm excited for this. Let's hear it. The title of this article is America Loves to Hate Billionaires. And it's written by a woman named Elizabeth Nealon, who I'll talk more about after I've read the article. All right. It's published in the Washington Examiner, which I'll also say something more about after I've read the article. Quality paper. Here we go. David Koch's recent death illuminated an evergreen truth. People love to hate billionaires. The Koch brothers, Charles and David, sat at the center of the left's vitriol for decades. Their fortune through Koch Industries allowed them to donate prolifically to right-leaning think tanks and political campaigns. During their time in the public eye, the Koch's opposition often accused them of buying elections and contributing (laughs) to modern environmental problems. (laughs) <laughs> Modern environmental problems. George like, way to undersell it. <laughs> George Soros, the left's philanthropic equivalent, has been similarly yes, criticized the by the thing. right. While both the Kochs and Soros have contributed significantly to political organizations and policy institutes, neither are the boogeymen that the media makes them out to be. You know, I don't want to interrupt here, but like this yeah. is so fucked up, right? Like that. Just, 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 our... just, just let... <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, get... all right. I'll hold off. Yeah, I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll give you a chance to rip it to shreds, but let me get through it. Um, it is true that both Coke and Soros became exorbitantly wealthy from their enterprises, but these men are not two-dimensional characters. They are multifaceted citizens with values and ideals that guide their actions, just like any other American. It is naive and dishonest to reduce them to caricatures who spend their days performing intentional evil or looking for ways to spite the poor. Their philanthropic donations of choice should not make them fair game for public character assassination. The Koch brothers' father founded the John Birch Society and hired a Nazi to make them (laughs) shit on command. Like, this is well known. They are not normal people. They're fucking psychopaths. (laughs) Okay, Bill Maher recently opened his show by stating, David Koch of the zillionaire Koch brothers died of prostate cancer. I guess I'll have to reevaluate my low opinion of prostate cancer. Not only is this statement shockingly distasteful, it mischaracterizes David Koch's legacy. 
just I mean, like Soros, Coke had a right to use his money to support his values. Oh, fuck this person. Moreover, the causes he supported might surprise you considering his starkly negative rap in the media. David Koch supported lower taxes, gay rights, smaller government, drug legalization. You're li- you are literally making my eyeballs boil out of my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is unbearable to me. He has given $20 million to the Museum of Natural History, $65 million to the MET, $100 million to Lincoln Center, and $87,000 to the campaign of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. A Democrat. (laughs) His brother, Charles Koch. dude. I guess we were wrong. Is currently teaming up with the famously progressive George Soros to start a think tank dedicated to decreasing U.S. military involvement abroad. This bipartisan effort is coming at a time when politics is becoming more polarized than ever, with right and left coalitions increasingly rare. However, the two men are putting aside their differences to bankroll what could be an encouraging return to a more sensible U.S. policy abroad. We're coming to the end. Indeed, Soros and the Kochs are billionaires. They have fortunes at their disposal, and they generously give to causes they support. But the argument that they are intensifying partisan divides through their philanthropy is as simplistic as it is erroneous. Their policy interests and legacies are multifaceted and should not be boiled down to a sweeping statement about their moral character. Condemning billionaires based on their wealth and political leanings is a straw man. (laughs) In this country, we are allowed to support causes with our resources as we see fit. Next time you hear Bill Maher thanking prostate cancer for killing a billionaire, ask why. Are Soros and Koch being justly condemned, or are we burning their effigies out of habit? Um, sorry to put you through that, but I, I, I thought some of the dumbest shit. Well, so before, before you do anything more, let me just say that the Washington examiner published this article. It's written by an undergraduate at Clemson university, Ah. who is the editor of the on-campus newspaper, the sensible tiger. If you remember a few weeks ago, I had a kind of moral dilemma about how yes. savagely to critique PJ McGuerko's student film. Quick aside, the website's down, so he found out, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, he took the website down. <laughs> You're kidding. Nope. <laughs> you get a 404 <laughs> if you try to go to that uh, website now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, um you can't punch down, right? And uh and this is an undergraduate uh that is a deeply misinformed article. But she so she's maybe, an intern now at the Cato Institute. Ah. Uh, okay. Well, you know, so you're not punching down anymore cuz And she know, but I mean I, I like she just got published <laughs> in, I mean, you know who owns the Washington Examiner? Isn't it it wasn't it Philip Anschutz? Exactly. It yeah. was Philip Anschutz is. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting connection. But I mean, it just seems to me that like okay, obviously this is a person who doesn't know a lot and hasn't read anything more than her like libertarian economist professors have asked her to read. Right. But at the same time, 
it articulates a position that yeah, I kind of think my, we have to contend. If my, with. if if my parents read that, they would be yeah. like, you know what? Yeah, you know, yeah, and and that's and I, I that's what I think is the problem, right? Like that it 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 sort of couches itself in this uh, commonsensical kind of way of looking at it. like, well, well, hey, hey, people hey, have wait, money. Wait, we can yeah. use money. Whatever. It's just the yeah, way that just it is. hold up here. Yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. These people are just normal people. They're just doing normal things. But also at an even more basic level, just the, the, the assumption that because you happen to have money, you're allowed to do anything with that money. It's the most fucked up evil assumption that one could make. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's like, that's the, point. that's the, yeah, that's that's the right. problem with capitalism. It's like, you don't deserve yeah. any of it. You know, you just have it. Money, money is not an index of deserving. Right. Yeah. You just, you just put it. Yeah. You just, I think that you just put it perfectly. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> money is not a right. Yeah. Yeah. But it is regarded as such by many of our laws and by this sort of common sense wisdom that we see Elizabeth Nealon dispensing in this uh, in this op-ed piece. So in any event, we've got to give Conrad Prebus a rating. <laughs> we didn't really talk that much about him, but he gave away a lot of money. Also a deadbeat dad. Um, yeah. I don't know. Five. Also um, a dead dad. A dead, a dead, dead beat dad dead dead beat yeah i think maybe uh, five five out of ten does that seem right to you four yeah I, yeah i, I mean he um, did i mean yeah i mean i don't know i don't have issues necessarily with how he gave his money away but it is totally random and he could have given his money away in any number of other ways well you know if david coke is a 10 is he is prebus prebus halfway there I'm I'm gonna all right four him, I'm gonna give him a, no, no you can stick with five I'm gonna give him a three let's average it out at four okay okay we got to spin the wheel for next episode you ready to spin that wheel yeah let's figure out who we're gonna research here Number one is James Cargill of the Cargill Corporation. Hmm. Uh, have you heard of Cargill? I have heard of, but I can't. You know, place everybody's it. heard of Monsanto, but few people have heard of Cargill. Uh, if you've lived in the Midwest, you you definitely know about Cargill. Also, they've uh, they've gained uh, more of a reputation in the last few years for being particularly evil. Uh, I've lived in the Midwest for years and I've heard the name, but I don't, I couldn't tell you what it well, is. Well, they have facilities everywhere. You probably drew them past the signs. Mm-hmm. Um, noticing right now that uh, James Cargill uh, is only one of the Cargills on our list. There's also Austin Cargill II, uh, who is the great grandson of the founder of the company. Uh, they're both great grandsons, actually, now that I see. Um, Let's spin that wheel again. Paul Fireman, founder of Reebok. Ooh, can I do him? Absolutely. Well, maybe maybe you should do him because I did a sweatshop one. 
Um, you know, to, frankly, I really like the agricultural ones, and I would okay. like to do Cargill. Okay, um, I'll do. Yeah, I like. I, I'm sort of curious about Reebok. All right, they sold the company to Adidas. Maybe you know this. I didn't know this, but they sold uh, Reebok was sold to Adidas for six hundred million dollars in 1999. So, I think currently owned by Adidas. Yeah, so Weird. you get to you get to work with both Reebok and Adidas. I think there's something I can do with this. Um, nice. Well, this is great. Thank you guys for listening to The Bitter End. As always, we really, really appreciate your support. Follow us, retweet us, tell people about the podcast, do the likes. All of that stuff is really helpful if you can muster up the energy to do stuff like that. Anything else you got for him, Chad? Uh, no, just a big thank you. Uh, thanks for sticking around.